0: chapter 8, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it upon the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> April 26th, 1986. There was a huge explosion at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Ukraine. Massive amounts of radioactive contamination sent up into the air, spread over much of the... Uh, Western USSR and Europe, a huge ensuing battle to try and contain all the contamination, uh, took up an estimated 500,000 workers, cost about 18 billion ruples, crippled the Soviet economy at the time, and Chernobyl of course is regarded as the worst ever nuclear power plant disaster. Um, I learned that it's one of only two nuclear disasters that have reached level 7 on the International Nuclear Power Plant Disaster Scale. I didn't realize there was such a scale but apparently there is. The other one of course was last year, Fukushima, after the Japanese uh, earthquake and tsunami. That was the only other one to get up to level 7. And in the wake of Chernobyl there were a lot of Christians who started to get really excited because they looked at Chernobyl and they looked at Revelation 8 and they thought they saw a connection particularly a connection with verse 11, with the name of the star, Wormwood. Because Chernobyl is based on the Ukrainian word for wormwood, which is actually a plant. Wormwood's a plant, and it grows quite prolifically in the Chernobyl area. So that's why they named the plant Chernobyl. And so Christians got all excited about this, and they thought, well, we're seeing biblical prophecy coming true before our eyes. This is the wormwood. This is the thing. It's going to poison the waters, and a third of the people are going to be destroyed. Now, I hope that we are far enough into the series now that when you hear people making these kinds of connections and trying to connect current events or modern-day history to the events of Revelation, that you ask a very important question. What did this mean to its... Oh, no. (laughs) i failed. What did this mean to its original readers, to its original... That's the question, right? That's the question you have to ask whenever people come up with these theories, whenever people bowl up to you, you know, the supermarket and the frozen food section and say, hey, this thing that's just happened, this natural disaster, look, 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 Revelation here, eight, you know, talks about it's right here. You always ask that question. But what did this mean to its original audience? Would these Christians John was writing to have thought, oh, Wormwood, that must be Chernobyl, the nuclear power plant? They wouldn't have made that association. They would have interpreted this within their own world of the first century, and we have to start there. We have to ask what they would have made, how they would have understood this kind of imagery, this kind of symbolism. And as it turns out, there, is some, there are some strong associations here in Revelation 8. This is supposed to trigger some associations with particular events at a particular place, at a particular time. But it's not Chernobyl in the 1980s. It's Egypt, several millennia before Revelation was written. That's the backdrop to these events. As the readers, John's readers heard this, read this, their minds would have gone back to a time when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And many people have noticed some striking parallels in these first four trumpet judgments in Revelation 8 and the plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt. Through Moses, in the context of liberating the Israelites from their slavery, God brought all kinds of plagues and destructions and there's some very interesting parallels here. When you look at these trumpet judgments in Revelation 8, the first of them is, is hail and fire coming down, hail and fire mixed with blood. It's a very close parallel to the, to the plague, the Egyptian plague, of hail and fire, or hail and lightning, some translations say, that God brought down upon Egypt, devastated the Egyptian crops, wiped out a lot of the agriculture. And you have the second trumpet that blows, and a huge mountain's thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turns into blood. Very strong parallel with what God did through Moses in turning the Nile River into blood. That's where John's readers' minds would have gone. That's exactly what Moses did, turn the Nile into blood. And now you're talking about the sea turning into blood. There's some kind of connection here. And then the third angel sounds his trumpet, this is the Wormwood one, and the star falls from the sky called Wormwood, and the, and the third of the waters turned bitter. Many people die from the bitter waters. That parallels the continuing plague of the waters turning to blood, because after Moses turned the Nile into blood, it extended out through all the reservoirs, ponds, and waterways of Egypt. The entire water system of Egypt was contaminated and became blood. That's the connection between this plague and the Egyptian plague. The reason that wormwood is used, that word wormwood, is simply because in the Old Testament it's a word that symbolizes the judgment of God. That's how Jeremiah uses it. God will make you to taste the bitter plant, make you to taste the wormwood plant. It just symbolizes God's judgment, being on the receiving end of God's judgment. That's what this would have triggered, not Chernobyl in the 1980s. And finally, this fourth trumpet sounds and a third of the sun is struck and a third of the moon and the stars. So in other words, the moon's not giving any light or a third of its light's gone and a third of the sun is gone. It's darkness. Exact parallel with what happened when Moses spoke to Pharaoh and God brought a plague of darkness upon the land. These parallels are unmistakable. What's going on here is that the Egyptian story of the plagues is forming a backdrop to the story of these trumpet judgments. Now imagine what this must have sounded like to John's hearers. Here they are in the first century, sitting in the midst of an empire, sitting in the midst of the Roman Empire, an oppressive, dominating, bullying, all-consuming, all-pervasive empire. And they're hearing about God's judgments, which sound a lot like the judgments that he brought upon another empire that oppressed the people of God, the Empire of Egypt back in the Old Testament. And they're hearing of these judgments that sound like these plagues. What connections do you think they would have been making here? That God is judging this empire? And of course, remember, why did he bring these judgments upon Egypt? Not just to punish Pharaoh, not just to be punitive, but to liberate his people. To bring his people out of Egypt. That's the whole point of the Egyptian plagues. John's hearers are sitting over here in Rome, and they're reading this, and they're thinking, this is what God's going to do to the empire. The empire cannot stand against the plans and the purposes of God. This is how they are receiving it. In the midst of Rome, the glory of Rome that seems eternal, that seems like it's going to last forever and it just is so all-consuming, they are hearing a message of judgment that God will not allow these evil empires that set themselves up against Him to stand. He will bring judgment. These empires will not last They will be crushed. They will be destroyed. God will bring plagues upon them. And he will liberate and he will rescue his people. These are the associations that would have been triggered for John's hearers. And of course, the warning that's implicit in that is if you align yourself too closely with Rome, if you cozy up to the empire and you start acting in the way of lion power, in the way of Rome power, through bullying, manipulation, coercion and force, you're going to go the way of Pharaoh. You're going to be swallowed up by the Red Sea. You're going to be consumed by the plagues, just as the Egyptians were. This is a call to follow the way of Lamb power and reject the way of lion power, the way of Rome power. Now, of course, there's more here than just something for the Roman Empire. If this was only about Rome, it would be largely irrelevant to us. But, of course, the message transcends Rome. That's the context in which these first Christians would have heard it. But the message is broader. The message is a a message of judgment upon any system, any ideology, any power, any authority, any narrative that opposes the kingdom of God. Any empire that is outside of the plans and purposes of God will suffer these kinds of judgments, and not just in some future time, but even somehow in the present. We'll talk about that in a moment. Some very interesting parallels here with these trumpet judgments that span Revelation 8 and 9. And the opening of the seven seals that we had back in Revelation 6. You remember the Lamb, Jesus, opens systematically the seven seals that seal the scroll. And now we have seven trumpets that sound. Some interesting connections there. With, With the seals, you find that a quarter of the earth's population is wiped out through these devastations. With the trumpet judgments, you find that a third of the earth's population are now destroyed. Now, please don't read these sequences of judgments in a strict chronological order. That is not the point. Revelation is not a timeline. It's not that there's going to be these judgments that wipe out a quarter of the population and then another set of judgments that wipe out a further third of the population. It's not like that. John's sense of time moves back and forwards all over the place. The trumpet judgments reiterate, the, the word theologians use is recapitulate, the judgments of the seals it's it's like a spiraling staircase covering the same ground from a different perspective so the trumpet judgments are giving us a perspective on the same series of judgments that the seals gave us in revelation 6 but now from a different and a heightened and a more intense perspective. The point is that the judgment is getting more intense. These pictures symbolize the severity, the intensity, the growing intensity of God's judgment as Revelation rolls forward towards its great climax, chapters 19 forward. And it's helpful when you look in these trumpet judgments because they seem very severe, and they are. They seem very disturbing, and they are. But it's helpful to keep in mind the purpose to which all of this is directed. Look at what happens when the final trumpet sounds. We're just going to jump ahead just for a minute so you see what happens here right at the beginning, of, uh, the middle of chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 15, when we finally, in a couple of weeks' time, we get to the seventh trumpet sounds, look at what the finally happens. Chapter 11, verse 15, "...the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah." and he will reign forever and ever. That's the goal. That's the point. That's where the trumpet judgments are heading, towards the establishment of God's kingdom. on God is not just judging to be retributive. He's not just judging to be a capricious, mean deity up in the sky who likes smiting people with lightning bolts. This is for the furtherance and the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth. God is pushing back the powers of darkness and the empires of evil in order to establish His reign, His authority, and His dominion upon the earth. That's where it's going. Just the same way it was going in Exodus. Not just to punish Pharaoh, but to establish God's reign and rescue His people and liberate them and bring them out into freedom and into glory. So keep that in mind as we travel through these trumpet judgments over the next couple of weeks. The point, the goal is not judgment, it's salvation. The point is mercy. The point is glory. The point is God's reign being established. But that necessitates a tumultuous process which is going to involve judgment along the way, the vanquishing of everything that stands against this kingdom of God. Now, I think the point of John going into all these details about judgment is not that his readers or us would obsess over the judgment of God, but this, so we would see our part in it so that we would see the role that we have to play in all this, and he explains what that is at the beginning of chapter 8. This little passage that sits here at the beginning of chapter 8, before all the trumpet judgments are unleashed, is really, really important. John sees an angel who has a golden censer. You know, a censer, if you didn't come out of a high church environment, uh, you know, like the Anglican priests or the Catholic priests have a container full of incense, and they swing it along, you know, and all the fumes of the incense, the beautiful aroma comes out as it, as it swings. That's the censer. So the angel's got this censer. Incense, by the way, it represents purity, a purifying agent. So the angel has this censer, and he comes to the altar. He's got much incense to offer, along with the prayers of all God's people. So he's taking this incense... And he's taking these prayers and the prayers are being purified by the incense and he's offering them on the altar. And as the incense hits the altar it turns to smoke because the altar's hot. And so then you have this picture of the smoke of the incense and the prayers of God's people mingling together and rising up and ascending into the throne room of God and filling the senses of the Lord. This is a beautiful picture of prayer. Isn't this one of the most stunning visions in the Bible of what prayer is and how prayer works? That when we pray, our prayers are being mingled with this holy incense and are rising up to fill the senses of God in heaven. This past week, our family's been battling colds. (coughs) I still am, (coughs) like many of you. Uh, Joshua got it, I think, somewhere, and he's been sharing the love all week with us, and we've just gone down like dominoes, you know, and with two boys sick, you know, sleepless nights, and they're coughing away, and it's just hard work, you know, and we're tired and exhausted, and then we're sick as well, and uh, we you know, honestly, in the middle of that, my prayer life, I think the most heartfelt prayer I've prayed uh, prayed this week is, Lord, let that baby stop crying. Um, that's been my earnest prayer before the throne room. But, you know, honestly, in the middle of the week that we've had, my prayer life has not been all it should be. Uh, my walk with God has not been all it should be. I, I've not spent much time, you know, focused on God and in His Word and my, my prayers. When I pray, I've just felt like my prayers are like one of those untied balloons that just fizzes around the room a few times, lands on the floor. Um, and in and, 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 and the irony of God, you know, he's got me preaching this sermon on prayer in the middle of this. So I'm sitting in my office in these mornings, cold mornings, feeling like death warmed up, uh, trying to bring something out of this passage on prayer. And in some ways, it has been a comfort to me that as I think about this passage and I think about this description of prayer, I'm comforted by the fact that even though my prayers feel like they're bouncing off the ceiling and they're going, my, my, my rambling, stumbling, selfish words are still being mingled with incense and rising up from the altar and filling the senses of God. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that beautiful? That whenever you pray, that's what's happening. Whether you you know it or not, whether you realize it or not, no matter how babbly your prayers are, no matter how ineffective you think they are, no matter how self-centered or whatever you think they are, they're always rising up, just as the cries of the Israelites rose up from earth to heaven. And Yahweh heard their cry. So our prayers, mingled with the purifying incense of God, rise up and are a sweet, fragrant aroma in the ears, and the nose of God. It's an amazing picture. Shouldn't that just give us a little bit more comfort when we pray? Doesn't have to be the eloquent words. In fact, a few stumbling, bumbling prayers, probably quite good. But that they have amazing power, and they all, God always hears. And he's so pleased. It's a sweet-smelling aroma in his ear. Take comfort from that. Spend some time in this passage if you're not sure whether prayer has real power and whether God really hears you. Spend some time on that beautiful picture at the beginning of chapter 8. And then look at what happens to the prayers. The prayers go up. They go up before God from the angel's hand. And then verse 5, Then the angel takes the censer, fills it with fire from the altar and hurls it on the earth. And there's thunder and rumblings, of, uh, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. In fact, the prayers that go up at the beginning of chapter 8 trigger the trumpet judgments. You could argue that the entire sequence of the seven trumpet judgments is all a response to the prayers of God's people at the beginning of chapter 8. Now do you believe prayer does nothing? Look at what happens when God's people pray. This is why uh, George Herbert, reflecting on the imagery of this passage, he calls prayer reversed thunder. It's wonderful. The prayers go up and thunder comes down. The angel takes that sensor, throws it upon the earth. The fire and the thunder come down and God's judgment goes forth. Prayer is dangerous. Prayer is incredibly effective. Whether you think it or not, whether you realize it or not, we are in the divine realm and are speaking and saying things that carry real weight in response to which God really acts. Whenever you pray, something happens. Always. Every time you pray, God acts. Always. He may not act the way you want Him to. Murray shared this this morning. May not act the way you're expecting Him to. May not act in ways that are visible or observable to you may not act in ways that return any benefit to you. As Murray said, he answers in ways we knowest not. But whenever you pray, God acts. And your prayers release the willingness of God to act in this world for the good of his kingdom. Toward the end of the Roman Empire era, The fourth century, there was a woman named Monica, and she fervently prayed for her son. She was really committed to praying for for her boy. And uh, one day, he announced, her son announced that he was going to travel to Rome. He was going to go and live in Rome. He was a teacher at university, and uh, they were living at the in that time at Carthage, which was Tunisia. But he wanted to go and move and live in Rome, and this was his mum's worst nightmare. It'd be like your son or daughter today saying they're going to go live in some rented apartment at the wrong end of the strip in Las Vegas. You know, this was bad news. And she prayed desperately that he would not go, that he wouldn't go to Rome, that he'd come to his senses and see the error of his ways and stay in Carthage and take this teaching position that he had there. She pleaded with him not to go. She even went right down to the water's edge as he boarded this ship, and he was adamant he was going to go. He boarded the ship to Rome, and she went and clutched his hand, at the water's edge and said, please don't do this. She knew Rome was a place of corrupting influence, just as it's portrayed here, a place of loose morals, a place where power and authority and greed reigns, and she knew this would destroy him. She begged him not to go, prayed earnestly that God wouldn't let him go. But off he sailed. And he got to Rome, one of the first things that happened when he got to Rome was that he caught this awful illness, this virus, had a fever, and it almost claimed his life. Seemed for a while there like his mum's worst fears were going to be realised. But he came through that and through a series of events and a series of conversations and explorations. Ironically enough, that young man became a follower of Jesus in Rome, of all places. His name was Augustine. He went on to become a bishop, prolific writer and theologian, now considered to be the father of Western theology, an absolutely immense figure in the history of the church all because God didn't answer his mum's prayers. And, and, and God let him go to Rome. But as Augustine would reflect in his, confessions, his book Confessions, what God did was answer the deepest cry of her heart for her boy to know Jesus. <clears throat> Whenever you pray, God acts. And I'd suggest what we need to do is widen out our field of vision because we tend to pray for a specific thing and then we just look and see if that specific thing happens. But when you pray for these specific things, there's nothing wrong with that. But perhaps we need to just use our peripheral vision to notice what God might be doing around the edges. When you pray, God may act over here. He may do something else. See, God takes our prayers and He redirects them as reversed thunder towards the accomplishment of His purposes. We pray, but God knows what truly needs to be done to establish and advance His kingdom, and that's what He's going to release into the world. Not what you want, but what He wants. But our prayers are like fuel to that fire. And they release the work of the Spirit of God coming down like fire upon the earth. Who knows what God's going to do in response to your prayers. Maybe something you never see. Maybe something you never experience. Maybe something that happens generations from your day as it did with Abraham. But when you pray, God always acts. He always responds. And always to the furtherance of His kingdom and his glory, always. Now what's a bit scary here is that the way God seems to act is a bit disturbing. You have these prayers that go up from the people of God, but look at what God does. He wipes out a third of the earth's population. This is almost a reason not to pray. I mean, I don't want to pray if God's going to suddenly bring hail and fire and blood down and wipe out a third of humanity. That's not what I I want. I'd rather not pray at all. But again, this is where we need to be clear on what these judgments are. These judgments, these trumpet judgments, like the other judgments of God in Revelation, these are not acts of God bringing physical destruction upon the earth, literally. They're just not. One of the saddest things I thought that happened after the Christchurch earthquake is that some Christians wanted to claim this was an act of God's judgment. It's disturbing how quickly some Christians want to go to that theme. And get on that train. One Christian blogger even claimed that the February 22 earthquake was God's judgment upon upon Christchurch because they didn't thank him after the September one that there hadn't been any lives lost. And and, and this stuff goes out into the blogosphere. The damage that it does to the cause of Christ is tremendous. If you want to understand theologically what happened in Christchurch, start with Romans 8, 21 and 22. Creation is groaning. Creation is in bondage to sin and corruption and brokenness, and it's crying out for liberation. That's what we're saying quite physically, quite literally, when we see earthquakes, that creation is groaning for something better, not that judgment of God coming upon people to wipe them out for sin. That's not how God works. That's not what God does. Please don't see in Revelation 8 these literal physical destructions that God is or will bring upon the earth. That's not what these are here to show us. What these judgments represent is what happens to the powers of evil every time you pray. What these judgments represent is the symbolic pushing back of the forces of darkness in response to the prayers of God's people. Because every time God's kingdom advances, think about it, there's another kingdom that's got to retreat. If God's kingdom is going to gain ground, another kingdom has got to lose ground. And what we see here is that kingdom, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom who's de- the one who is described as the ruler of the present age, we see his kingdom being pushed back. We see the powers of darkness being destroyed every time people pray. We see the forces, the principalities, the dominions and the authorities of evil on earth and in the heavenly realms being vanquished because the Spirit of God is at work. That's not just something that's going to happen in some future end times scenario. It's something that's happening right now when you pray. This morning, there's a few of us that met over in Kiwi Block to pray. A few brave souls braved the rain, braved the cold, came and prayed. And we're pray- It's a pretty unimpressive looking group. No offense, but you know, it's a bunch of people. We're sitting around, we're saying some prayers, we're praying for God to, to move and to act, and praying for, for His work in our church, praying for those who struggle in our church, praying even for the leaders of our nation this morning. As we do that, as we pray, our prayers are going up to the heavenly throne room, and another plague of fire and hail is coming down upon the powers of darkness. you realize that's what's happening? That's the force and power of prayer. Another plague is coming against the powers of darkness. It's a sign and a symbol to them that their day is over. And there's a new kingdom here. When 20 guys gathered in the hub on one freezing morning last year, early in the morning, to pray for Murray and sent up all kinds of prayers and requests for God to intervene and heal and protect and watch over them. Those prayers ascended to the heavenly throne room and they came back to earth as reversed thunder and another mountain was thrown into the sea. Whether we see it or not, whether we know it or not, that's what's happening every time you pray. When you pray for a sick child, as we've been this week, Praying for healing, praying that God would get them through this cold or flu or whatever quickly. Another plague, another wormwood star is falling upon the authorities of evil that stand against the kingdom of God and bring sickness and ill health into this world. That is what is happening when you pray. These judgments just describe what happens every time God's people pray and every time God's Spirit Acts, powers of darkness are being pushed back. It's a sign and a seal to the authorities of evil that a new day is here, a new kingdom is being inaugurated and new creation is on its way. Shouldn't that give you a little bit more encouragement that your prayers are really having power, really having effect and God really does respond whether you see it or not? And of course, we're never to pray for judgments to come. We don't need to do that. We just pray a prayer modeled on the prayer Jesus gave us to pray, thy kingdom come. In fact, that's exactly what Revelation 8 and 9 describe, is God's kingdom coming on earth and His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the Lord's prayer being answered. And that's all we need to be praying. Thy kingdom come. What does it look like for God's kingdom to come into your workplace? Pray for that. What does it look like if God's kingdom came into your home? Pray for that. What what would it look like if God's kingdom came to your friends, family, others who are struggling, carrying burdens? Pray for that. You just pray, thy kingdom come. Whatever that means and however you understand it in your context, you pray that you leave the judgment side of things to God. He can take care of that. You just pray for the kingdom to take shape and burst in whatever room you're in in that moment. Prayer is the most powerful thing that we can do. Prayer is the most practical thing that you can do. Do you believe that? It's actually the most productive thing you can do. Of course we should be active. Of course we should be doing good. Of course we should be showing kindness. Of course we should be sharing our faith. Of course we should be developing Christ-like character. But if you do those things and you do not pray, it is not God's kingdom you're building. It's yours. And it's not Him building it. It's you. Prayer anchors us in the purposes and the providence of God. It anchors us in what He is doing, not in what we think He should be doing, or worse, simply what we want to do. It reorientates us around the throne of God and the lamb and centers us in lamb power. It prevents our prayers from just becoming a shallow request to build an edifice to our own glory. Prayer is for God's kingdom to come. It's the primary role we have in this whole cosmic battle between God and the forces of evil already won because of the victory of the lamb. It's the primary role we're called to, to stand in the gap between heaven and earth and pray as intercessors for the kingdom of God to come. All kinds of ways, all kinds of ordinary events, but to pray fervently and passionately for the kingdom of God to come. This is why Walter Wink says, history belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being, who call out of the future the longed-for present. May we be a praying people. And may our prayers ascend to the throne room of heaven and return to earth as reversed thunder for the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, even now we're just gripped by that picture that as my words and our thoughts are collected and gathered to you, they're ascending, mixed with incense filling your senses, such a sweet and fragrant aroma. But then, God, they're returning to earth and accomplishing your purpose not ours in ways that we see, in ways that we don't. We thank you, God, that you have given us the privilege of praying, that you've given us this role in the establishment of your kingdom to call for it, to cry for it, to intercede on behalf of ourselves and others and all of creation. God, make us a praying people, even when it's hard, even when it's drudgery, even when it's tedious, make us a praying people, and assure us again that our prayer truly does have power within your kingdom. We pray these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.